All right, we'll uh, wrap up our conversations. You can find your seats. As you're finding your seats, you can open up your Bibles to the book of Acts. It'll be in Acts chapter 1 this morning, Acts chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a black hardbound one somewhere around you. Passage will also be on the screen. Super excited about the launch of Gospel Communities. I'm excited about having lunch on the lawn. Thanks for all of you that are serving to make that happen. Um, And just the idea that we can be together as a family is a wonderfully, radically countercultural kind of statement that we're making both to ourselves and to the world that we actually value one another and we want to reorient our lives to be together so that we can grow um, in what it means to follow Jesus but also love one another and reach out to our city. So lunch is going to be amazing. I look forward to uh, you meeting all of our gospel community leaders for the um, semester and in our prayer, like we prayed this morning, like we, we don't want any single person to miss out on the gift of God's family. We prayed that God would set the lonely in families this morning. And we've been talking a lot about the epidemic of loneliness that exists in our world. Even though we're really connected in lots of ways, there's ways that people live isolated and disconnected lives. And we just don't want that for you. And so please, um, I know it would take a, a huge step of faith, but you may be walking in the door for the first time. We want you to know that this is for you and we would love to meet you and encourage you. So Acts chapter 1. So this week I received an email and it was entitled, What Will the Church of 2032 Look Like? So you have that date in your mind, 2032. Now the first time I read it, if you know anything about me, um, an email like that immediately piques my interest for a couple of reasons. One is, who can believe it's almost 2032? Right, I mean, for me, like growing up in my generation, like that was like that was the Jetsons time, you know. I mean, they were going to have flying cars. If you don't know the Jetsons, you can look it up on YouTube, and you'll be really bored. Um, but the idea that the future is, you know, just around the corner, ten years. What will the church look like? Um, and I, I also was curious because um, I've given my entire life to to thinking about the health and the future and. And how, of the church and what that could actually look like. And so this came from someone that I actually respect. And so I kind of wanted to s- see his take on what would happen over the next 10 years. And um, he usually puts out some pretty good content. And so had a couple words for leaders, like make sure that you're adaptable, that you're learning. And I thought that was good counsel. Um, but most of his email focused in on like... Um, cultivating digital technology for the church, and I thought, you know, that's probably wise. Um, But it it began to make me ask a question that he probably didn't necessarily intend, but the first question that I started to ask as I was looking at just the reality of a digital world and a digital church was, how in the world did we get here? You know, how did we get from the pages of the New Testament and the teachings of Jesus where people lived Lives of radical obedience, following Jesus, living life together to the point where um, the, the future of the church is almost entirely digital. Now, I don't think that that's actually where the church is going. I, I, think, I, I think that's where like, 
you know, you, you could end up if you went down a certain trail. But I do believe with the epidemic of loneliness, I think what you're going to see is a lot more smaller groups of people getting together, living life together, trying to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And sometimes to think about the future, you actually have to go backwards. And that's why we're going to spend the next several months looking at the book of Acts. And we're going to try to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, not just hear stories of the early church, but um, we're actually asking God to help us to follow in their footsteps. Like we want to follow him in such a way that we, in our lives together, begin to look more and more like the early church. And so this morning we're going to do an introduction Acts chapter 1, we're going to read verses 1 through 8. And the big idea for this morning is kind of the big idea for the entire series, and it is this. The book of Acts invites us to reimagine the future of the church by reengaging with God's power and his purposes for the early church. The book of Acts invites us to reimagine the future of the church by reengaging with God's power and his purpose for the early church. So our future lies in looking backwards and to the degree that we will conform our lives to the power and purpose that God has for the early church. Does that make sense? All right. Amen. All right. You guys could stand up. We're going to read God's word. You're welcome to respond this morning. That's always helpful. I preach better, like, if you guys, like, say amen. We're in the South, for crying out loud. Let's do that, you know? All right, Acts 1, 1 through 8. Verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, you may be seated. Would you pray with me? Father, we have already been richly blessed by just being together, being together in your presence, being a a spirit-filled community that's addressing one another in hymns and songs and spiritual songs. Um, But as we dare to look to the future and what that might hold, we know that we need more of you. we, we don't have the market cornered on what it means to be followers of Jesus or what does it mean to be a spirit-empowered disciple. We want to follow in the footsteps of your early disciples. We want to tap into the same power source. We readily admit how weak we are apart from you. At the same time, we approach you with real confidence knowing that you have power for us for our future. So I pray that even now as we're reading the text that your spirit would fall on us in the same way that you fell on the early church, that we would be different as a result. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as we begin to jump into the book of Acts, 
the first thing we're going to look at this morning is the book of Acts compels us to give our lives afresh to the purposes of God in our generation. The book of Acts compels us to give ourselves afresh to the purposes of God in our generation. Now, I mean, with a new school year that's kind of just beginning, it's, it's always important to begin to ask the questions, what am I giving my life to? And the book of Acts gives us a compelling picture of what it looks like to give your life to the purposes of God. Now, Acts, just as the title implies, is the action-packed story of the early church. Acts was written by Luke, who was a companion of the Apostle Paul, You'll notice as we go throughout this book, it'll go from Luke describing events kind of in a more abstract, historical way to a very personal, upfront, and experiential kind of way. And he writes in such a way that he actually wants us to get involved in the story. Now, church history regards Luke as a physician because he uses scientific language. Um, But more than anything, Luke is known as a historian. His writing meets all of the definitions of ancient literature and history. These aren't just stories that exist on a page, but these are well-documented facts of the early church, what life looked like for them. Now, so for most of you, this means that Luke is a very logical, linear thinker. So if you are an Enneagram type 1 or 5, you're going to be excited. You're going to fall in love with Luke. Um, But Acts is actually the second book that Luke wrote. Obviously, the Gospel of Luke was written by him. And verse 1 says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So you've got Luke and Acts really meant to be read together. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. This is about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And the implication for the book of Acts, is this is all that Jesus continued to do through the power of the Holy Spirit through his followers, right? And this is a story that we're all invited to participate in. Acts is what Jesus will continue to do by the power of the Spirit through his followers. Now, what I'm excited about is that as we dig into this book, we're, we're, we're not just reading abstract history. This is the story of the early church, but it also is our story. It's a story about how the gospel moved from first century Palestine and traveled to the ends of the earth and ultimately ended up in Jonesboro, Arkansas. Luke was writing to a man named Theophilus, whose name means beloved of God. Most likely, Theophilus was the financial patron that paid for Luke to do all of his traveling around and study. But at his heart, Luke is a storyteller. He's not just writing abstract history. He actually wants to pull you into the story. The thing that defines reality for Luke and defines reality for the church is found in verse 3. Verse 3 says, Jesus, and that's he, presented himself alive after suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. It is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead that begins to shape reality. Luke actually wants all of his readers, especially Theophilus, to have confidence that Jesus is alive. Luke is telling the story in such a way that this is the story that turned the entire Roman Empire upside down in one generation by the power of the Holy Spirit. And 
Thousands upon thousands of people, as they've read this book, get caught up in the story and watch God do his work. So for Luke and for us, the resurrection changes everything. Because Jesus is alive, that means that absolutely anything is possible. So no matter where you find yourself this morning, if you are in need of forgiveness, if you are in need of reconciliation, the book of Acts is an invitation to come to Jesus and allow him to bring you resurrection life. Now, I want to be crystal clear as I say story. I'm not talking about something that's made up. I'm talking about an overarching meta-narrative that explains the true story of the entire world. Luke is saying because Jesus has conquered the grave, he has paid for all of our sins, past, present, and future, that Jesus Christ now defines reality. And my prayer is that his story will begin to capture our heart in a fresh way, that we would move past apathy and indifference and a message that's just kind of something that we get excited about occasionally to to the story that actually defines reality for us. Now, recently I went on a writing retreat with about six other guys. All these guys are pastors at other churches, and we're working on some discipleship curriculum. And I don't know if you've ever been in a room full of pastors. Sometimes it can go uh, amazingly well, and sometimes people actually have different ideas. And so when you're trying to get six guys together to bring their best ideas forward, so one of the first things that we did was we watched a uh, uh, a Pixar documentary on Buzz Lightyear. So that sounds appropriate, right? Buzz, any Buzz? Yeah, Buzz fans. So this documentary that we watched about Buzz Lightyear was about the thousands upon thousands of iterations that went into making the character Buzz Lightyear. All the detail that actually went into forming his helmet and the, the belt that he put on. And um, actually, early iterations of the character Buzz Lightyear was not called Buzz Lightyear. It was Lunar Larry. Is that right, Landon? Yeah. All right. So my son is a, yeah, he's an amateur trivia buff. But anyway, Lunar Larry doesn't have quite the same buzz, pun intended, as Buzz Lightyear, Right. But they went to painstaking detail to collaborate together because their overarching passion was to tell the world a better story. Now, Bobette Buster, who is of Pixar fame, she says this. It says, in our culture, whoever tells the best story wins, right? And I don't think there is a more accurate statement about life in our culture right now. Whoever tells the best story wins. And the truth is, and I'm not a doomsday prophet, but right now, the world is telling a far more compelling story than the church is, right? The story of materialism, that life exists in the abundance of your possessions, what you can touch, touch what you can taste, what you can smell, what you can process, all the experiences that you're afraid that you're going to miss out on. It's selling you a certain message. The world is telling us the story of distraction. And this is death by numbing yourself to death. This is a substitute for life. The story of control that, that in your very fingertips you have all the information that exists in the world. The problem is our souls are not meant to process all of the information that exists in the world. And the overriding experience when we try to control the world through technology is anxiety and worry and fear. 
And my prayer is that we would become, just like Luke, a new generation of storytellers that tells the world a better story about Jesus. Now, some of this will happen through writing and creating, but listen, every single one of us tells a story with our lives, right? The greatest story that you will ever tell is by how you live your life. And as I was praying this morning, I mean, when the story is written of our individual lives and the story is written of Fellowship Jonesboro, if we wrote that down for a future generation to read, would they be compelled to take more action and more risk and to trust Jesus more deeply? Those are the kinds of questions that we need to be asking as we read the example of the early church. The book of Acts compels us to believe in what is possible. The book of Acts covers one generation of time, 30 years, and it, it gives us the story of how 120 followers of Jesus begin to trust him, become empowered by his spirit, and see the gospel go to the ends of the earth. So the question for us this morning is, what could be possible if we give ourselves to the same cause? What if we give ourselves to the cause of the gospel to go to the ends of the earth? What will happen if we reject the story of materialism and we reject the story of just living individual, isolated lives, and we partner together for the sake of our city, for the sake of the generations to come, to see the gospel go forward in our time and in our day. The book of Acts is why I am infinitely hopeful about the future of the church. Because the future of the church is the story of God that he is committed to fulfilling in our time and in our place. The story of God is about him empowering weak individuals like you and I and seeing him do amazing things. So who's up for this journey in the book of Acts? All right, four people. Let's go. All right. Next thing we're going to look at. The book of Acts gives us an infinitely hopeful yet realistic vision of the kingdom of God. Look at verses 3, and then we're going to look at verses 6 and 7. Verse 3, he, and that's Jesus, presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God, so that when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So I want you to imagine the scene. Jesus has conquered the grave. He has his closest followers. He assembles them together. He spends 40 days talking to them about the kingdom of God. What kind of questions would you have asked Jesus during that 40 days? Right Now, if I'm thinking about this time, and I'm pretty sure this is the mindset of these guys, Jesus actually just defeated death. So in their mind, that the kingdom of God is, is going to come in its fullness in just a few minutes. And this means that basically all of their enemies are going to be swept away, in particular the nation of Rome. And, I mean, it's almost like, I mean, so at every wedding that I've ever been to in my generation, like there was a moment when everybody got out on the dance floor, you know, and it was like celebration and cool in the gang. I don't know, do they still do that? Now it's probably the cha-cha slide, but it's that moment where everybody gets engaged, 
right? That's what's going on during these 40 days. Jesus has presented himself alive, and they're basically thinking at this moment, all of our troubles are gone away. If he's defeated death, nothing bad could ever happen to us again. Now, I wish that that was just isolated to the early followers of Jesus. But the truth is, most people in this room were sold a version of Christianity that if you follow Jesus, all of your problems will go away, right? Either implicitly or explicitly, that if you follow Jesus, nothing bad could ever possibly happen to you. And unfortunately, that is just not the case. All you have to do is read the book of Acts. This is a story of (laughs) explosive church growth. Day one, 3,000 people get saved. I mean, everybody's signing up for that chapter of Acts. But if you just go a few chapters later, what you're going to find is that not only does it contain explosive church growth, there are miracles, but there are also martyrs. There's explosive church growth, but there's also shipwrecks, setbacks, disappointments. And the, the power of the Spirit doesn't promise to give us a pain-free, suffering-free existence. Actually, the Scriptures promise that as you follow Jesus in His footsteps, that you will walk the road of suffering with Him. It doesn't promise to eliminate that from your life. But what it does promise is that he will never leave you or forsake you on the way. Now, one one of my favorite authors, writers, speaker, Corey Russell says this. He says, the way of the kingdom is death and resurrection. My wife and I, we've been talking about this J-curve. We may have an illustration for you of the J-curve. This, it's basically a picture. Yeah, there it is. So, we got this originally from Paul Miller, and most of us, when we read the book of Acts, or we think about Christianity, we live above the line, right? We think about resurrection, we think about new life, we think about new power, um, but we forget the fact that it's death that actually leads to resurrection, right? Acts, as we follow through, you're going to see people that are pushed beyond what they can naturally do, and they actually experience kinds of death. And listen, I know the stories of people in this room enough to know that some of you feel like you are going through death. You are following in the way of Jesus. Just because you are below that line experiencing death, it is positioning you to actually experience resurrection, but resurrection cannot happen apart from death. Does that make sense? Right? And we see this illustrated over and over on the pages of the book of Acts. It's very tempting in the Christian life to only focus on the high points of the story of Jesus. But that leaves us, ultimately, when suffering comes finding us, and it will find us all, it will leave you disillusioned and disoriented. The truth is, we all have a story to tell with our life. And when you are walking through those seasons where you're going through the valley of the shadow of death, and you are still trusting Jesus, and you're still singing to him with all that you are, That's a testimony both to yourself and to people around you that Jesus is enough. And and those are the moments where people are going to lean in and ask you about your hope. 
Nobody's going to ask you about your hope if, if your life is always going up and to the left. But it's the people that are anchored and rooted and grounded in God's purposes and God's story that can testify to them when everything else seems like it is falling apart. I love that song we've been singing, Firm Foundation, He Won't. There's, there's a song where it says, I have peace that makes no sense. That only happens when we walk through the story of Jesus experiencing death, but also trusting him for resurrection. So if your life makes no sense, there's peace that's available because of Jesus. And you're going to see that on every page of the book of Acts. Which brings me to my final point. The book of Acts demonstrates both the power and the potential of spirit-empowered disciples and churches. The book of Acts demonstrates the power of spirit-empowered disciples and churches. We're going to look at verses 4 and 5, then verse 8. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now Luke is oftentimes called the theologian of the Holy Spirit. If you read the Gospel of Luke in its second volume, the book of Acts, you will see the Holy Spirit mentioned more than any other place in Scripture. And the question that I'm asking myself over and over again is, what would my life look like if I gave myself over to total dependence on the power of the Holy Spirit? What would our lives look like? The great sin of the modern church in my lifetime is trying to do Jesus-y things in the power of the flesh, right? Over and over again. There's not a page that you will witness that will not have the power and the presence and the activity of the Holy Spirit. J.D. Greer says this in his book, Jesus Continued. He says, The book of Acts tells the mind-blowing story of how a group of underqualified, mostly blue-collar workers filled with the Holy Spirit can turn the world upside down. We're still reeling today from that first Christian century. New Testament scholars have pointed out that when later Christians gave a name to the book of Acts, they probably chose the wrong title. Rather than the Acts of the Apostles, many say it should instead be the Acts of the Holy Spirit. They say this because even a quick read of Acts reveals that the Spirit of God is the primary actor. He guides, he speaks, and he moves. The disciples are simply trying to keep up. It becomes rigidly clear that the Spirit, not them... Readily clear, I'm getting glasses soon by the way, readily clear that the Spirit, not them, is the one accomplishing the mission that Jesus gave them in Acts 1.8. So Acts 1.8 presents a a real tension. So you've got Jesus presenting himself alive, he's not yet ascended. He gives them the, the promise of the Father, which is the promise of the Holy Spirit, There's this call to go to the ends of the earth, but not yet, right? So there's this tension. You're supposed to go, 
And the reason that they're meant to wait is because they don't have the power in and of themselves, even believing on Jesus, that will take the gospel to the ends of the earth. It's going to take a power that is outside of them, that's going to come and to dwell within them, to actually help them to follow Jesus. Now, there is a ton of confusion in our day about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. I hope to provide some clarity over the next several months. But many times people quit on the Holy Spirit before they even begin because of the crazy people on TV, right? Can I get an amen on that one, right? But listen, why do these people get to be the spokespeople of Christianity, right? Why would we punt on our inheritance of the Holy Spirit just because you got some crazy people with white suits that blow on people? Right? That's not, I mean, that's not what the book of Acts portrays, but, but what the book of Acts actually portrays is a group of people that give themselves over to the power and the purpose of God. And when they were waiting for the Spirit to come, they didn't have the same hang-up. As they were waiting for the promise of the Father, that meant something very specific to them. They knew that this was the fulfillment that God had given through the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel. That there was going to come a day when the Spirit wouldn't just be their teacher, but the Spirit actually would come inside of them and actually write His law on their hearts. And that He would give them a new heart and new affection. And more than that, more than just the Spirit being a teacher, the Spirit would also bring power. If there's one thing that is unavoidable as you read this book is they have a different power than we do, right? I mean, have you ever read the book of Acts? I mean, they're walking in a different kind of anointing than we are. So there's only a couple of choices, and most people just choose, well, God just doesn't do that thing uh, anymore. That's not the position that we take. We actually believe that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is actually at work powerfully in us and that he actually has more for us in the realm of the Holy Spirit, but we actually have to ask him to fill us, and that's what we're going to get to. So it says um, at the end of Luke chapter 24, this is kind of the end of the gospel of Luke, he says this, he says, Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power on high. How many of us give up on the mission because we, are not wait, we have not waited till the point we are clothed with power from on high? Right? Um, so many times we, we want to go over and we want to witness to our neighbor, but we do not simply lack the power to do so. So this is an invitation for us to be reacquainted with the power of the Holy Spirit. So next week, football season kicks off. Can I get an amen? amen. Right? <laughs> thousands upon thousands of grown men will actually put on football jerseys. Right? So that they can have, and women, yes, didn't mean to be sexist there. Men and women will put on their football jerseys so that they can identify with their team. So that they can actually be a part of the game. Jesus says, you must have power that comes from on high. You must be clothed with that power. That means you actually have to put it on so that you can walk in the power of the Spirit. So for, for the early followers of Jesus, they would know the story of Gideon, who basically when God called him, he was hiding on a threshing floor from the people of Midian. And then God's power 
His spirit, in the book of Judges, it says, rushes on him, and he actually leads an army of 300 to defeat the army of Midian. All right, I think I have an illustration of this. You know the story of Samson, right? I think I got a picture. This is Samson. This is how he's portrayed most of the time. Rippling muscles. But if, now, I learned this from one of my mentors from a distance, Terry Virgo. But you look at that picture of Samson. All throughout the book of Judges, people are asking Samson, where does your great strength come from? If he had all of those muscles, I'm pretty sure they didn't have to ask him where his strength came from. The reason that, th- that I think this is a wrong depiction of Samson is he was probably a pretty ordinary looking guy. But when the power of the Holy Spirit came upon him, he began to be able to tear animals apart with his bare hands. That's the power of the Holy Spirit, right? And so we're all co- most of us are comfortable with the Spirit bringing illumination, the Spirit being our teacher. But the Spirit also brings radical power so that we can be his witnesses. And so... I want to continue just to go through this. Um, This is power that we receive from on high. So there's different ways that different traditions teach the power of the Holy Spirit. Some people say, Acts 1.8, and I'll go ahead and read it to you. It says, um, verse 8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so some traditions teach that this verse in Acts 1.8 is, is talking about conversion. This is talking about when people meet Jesus, they get a new heart and new affections, and they're moved from death to life. So you've got one camp over here that teaches it that way. And then you've got another camp, and some of you probably came from this camp, that this is talking about a secondary experience of the Holy Spirit that brings power and gifts and anointing. And so you've got both of those camps, and um, if you read books, lots of people tend to disagree on this, depending on what your theological bent is. So what's the answer? Is it conversion? Is it a secondary blessing? And I'm not punting on this by any means, but I think the answer is yes. As you read the book of Acts, there are works of conversion and there are works of empowerment, but both of them are necessary. Listen to this quote from John Wimber. I think this is the best definition that I've heard. It says, It's a simple fact that God has a work of conversion. God also has a work of empowerment. It can occur simultaneously. It can occur sequentially. So as you read the book of Acts, that's what you'll see. It can occur with a long intermission between the two, or it can occur in a short period of time. But the bottom line is that it needs to occur. It is the infilling, empowering of the church, and we need that in in order to accommodate the work of God Conversion is truly a baptism in the Holy Spirit. There's no reason that we cannot use baptism also to refer to subsequent fillings of the Spirit as well. So the overwhelming emphasis in the New Testament is God comes in, He moves people from death to life, but He also comes in and He empowers them. Right? There's a radical transformation that happens 
um, from the point of the resurrection where the disciples are behind locked doors because they're afraid of the Jews till they're out in the streets proclaiming. And the difference is the empowerment that comes from the Holy Spirit. So some people in this room, you need the work of conversion, right? You're still dead in your trespasses and sins. You maybe have tried to clean yourself up or tried to merit something from God. There's a work of conversion where God opens our eyes to the fact that he loves us more than we could ever imagine. And when that love begins to come alive inside of you, it actually allows you to begin to trust him to change you. That's, that's the message of conversion. But there's also, and listen, listen, we all need a work of empowerment, right? To the degree that our lives are out of step with the book of Acts, we need more of the Holy Spirit, right? So the overwhelming emphasis as you read the New Testament, there's phrases like walk in the Spirit, you know? Put to death the deeds of the flesh by the power of the Holy Spirit. That the Spirit comes upon you so that you can bear witness to the reality that Jesus is alive. There's a work of conversion, but there's also a work of empowerment. And I don't care where you are on this spectrum, there's always more, right? God didn't create the church to kind of be this static entity to where we got one download from heaven of the Holy Spirit that's supposed to last us for the rest of our lives. No, he's actually said, I want you to ask. I want you to seek. I want you to knock. I want you to ask for more of my power. I want you to ask for more of my presence so that you can be my witnesses. And I think much of our modern dilemma is because we lack the power of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to conclude today by just simply positioning ourselves to ask. I'm going to turn to Luke 11, then I'm going to pray for us. Luke 11. Verse 11 says this. It says, and I want you to notice, this, isn't, this is speaking to believers. Luke 11, 11, What father among you, if his son, that's Sonship language, ask for a fish, well, instead of a fish, give him a serpent. Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So most of the time, I think the disconnect is, if you think you already have everything that you would ever possibly need, why would you ask for more? But it's very clear that Jesus is teaching his disciples, there's going to be times and seasons and places that you ask for more of the Holy Spirit. So that's what we're going to do today so that we can be his witnesses. I want to just ask everyone to bow your head. I'm not going to force anything up on you. I'm not going to try to make you say anything that you don't want to say. But I do want us to take up God's power this morning that comes from the Holy Spirit. Father, you're a good father. You know how to give good gifts to your children. I pray that you would cut through fear, that your perfect love would cut through fear and bring peace. I pray that where there's a work of conversion that needs to happen right now, that by the power of the Spirit that you would open blind eyes to see Jesus. Where there's a work of empowerment that needs to take place, where we can be bold 
and take your gospel to the ends of the earth. I pray that right now that you would fill us fresh with your spirit, that we would be empowered to be your witnesses. Lord, we see a huge disconnect between what's on the power or what's on the pages of the book of Acts and what's happening in our own lives. And, and we just say, Lord, we, do, we don't want that disconnect. We don't want it to be because we've not asked and we've not sought you and we've not um, wanted to receive from you. So we receive now good gifts from you because of all that Jesus has done for us. We trust you to be at work in us and through us. Lord, we, we want to be disciples, not just of Jesus, but disciples that are empowered by the Holy Spirit that help us to bear witness to Jesus. So burn through all of the confusion, burn through all of the um, disillusionment, and fill us with your power. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, I'm going to go ahead and invite...